Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I am visiting with Joan Nathan, author of 11 cookbooks, including her newly published King Solomon's Table, a culinary exploration of Jewish cooking from around the world. Her previous cookbook, Quiche's Kugels and Couscous, was named one of the 10 best cookbooks of 2010 by NPR, Food and Wine, and Bon Appetit magazines. Joan Nathan's Jewish Cooking in America won both the James Beard Award for the Best American Cookbook and the IACP, Julia Child Cookbook of the Year Award. And in 2017, this book was named a culinary classic by the IACP. The television series on PBS, Jewish Cooking in America with Joan Nathan, was nominated in 2000 for the James Beard Award for Best National Television Food Show. She's appeared as a guest on numerous radio and television programs, including the Today Show, Good Morning America, the Martha Stewart Show, and National Public Radio. An inductee to the James Beard Foundation's Who's Who in America, Food and Beverage, Joan Nathan has also received the Silver Spoon Award for Food Arts Magazine and was awarded a special recognition Award from the YIVO Institute for Jewish Research for her work to preserve Jewish foodways. She's a regular contributor to the New York Times and Tablet Magazine. Welcome, Joan. Thank you. Thank it's you. Great to have you back. Always, uh, no pun intended, a treat to have a chance to visit with you. <laughs> so um, I was intrigued by the title of your recently published King Solomon's Table and wondered if you could share a little bit about maybe how this sets up the book. Well, it sets it up because I was in India and on vacation at um, the Kochi Synagogue, and I saw this sign in the synagogue that saying that the Jews had been in India since the time of King Solomon. And I thought, whoa. And it just got me on a whole um, journey, not the journey I set out to write for this book, but a different one, a historical one, but a historical one putting Jewish food in perspective. So I started looking at um, the, the world around 1000 B.C. and before. So I, I found a cookbook on cuneiform tablets and written in Akkadian from the 1700 B.C. BCE. And um, this Babel, these Babylonian tablets had... 44 recipes, but these were recipes for the gods because, of course, there was no monotheism um, before Abraham, who was in 1400 B.C. And um, these were huge banquets. So the recipes, although they really weren't recipes, were not so helpful. But what was helpful What were, were the ingredients because then I learned what was going on in the ancient world. I saw that sesames from China were already there. And then I also saw that um, chickpeas were there. And um, uh, nigella seeds that we're just discovering, those slightly um, anise-flavored, but not really anise-flavored. They're sort of pungent that we find on top of barrecas and other dishes that's also on the cover of my book. Um, and I found that uh, 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 one of the recipes in these, on these tablets was for a beet, bor- a beet borscht, but with, a, with meat and other things, but lots of beets. And, I, you know, I realized that dill was there and Swiss chard and, of course, all the, most of the meat that we eat today, but not domestic chickens. And um, anyway, so 
I just started looking at Jewish food differently because I realized that I'd always thought of Jewish food just coming from the desert and coming from um, basically the Jews in the desert coming from Mount, uh, to, from Mount Sinai to Jerusalem and bringing all these ingredients. And I realized that these were ingredients. I mean, I knew it, but this was, was a way of really seeing that they were of the land. And I also realized that, that Babylonia was extremely important, not only in the Middle East at that time, it was the most uh, civilized city, and um, the Tigris-Euphrates Valley had so much, um, it, it was very fertile, and there was a, it was a communication center. And I realized that once, when the Jews left for the first, the, um, the destruction of the first temple, many of them just didn't come back to Israel. Many of them stayed in Babylonia. And so that Iraqi cuisine is sort of the heart of so much cuisine that we have today that emanated, that started in the Middle East. And so, you know, I just followed that, the, the circles of Jewish food and the wandering of it. Which is, I, I think, so incredible about your approach, and I think you've done this with your other cookbooks, that you, you come at this as something, I think it's safe to say, as a, a culinary anthropologist telling that Jewish food history. And I am intrigued by what you discovered in this journey in terms of how all of these foods traversed um, different countries and came back to the countries and, you know, how these ingredients wove their way into all of these different dishes. Well, you know, what's so interesting is that in the ancient world, they, 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 they traveled by seeds, spices and seeds. Mm-hmm. And, um, but today, you know, grocery stores are, 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 they're traveling that way. They're traveling through the Internet. Um, we're still, we're rediscovering old foods because today we can cook from any ingredient from all over the world. You know, spice merchants are trying to find the, the new, the new might, that's very old, but the new. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's, you know, nothing has changed. That's what, as King Solomon, one of his great quotes is, you know, nothing, nothing has changed under the sun. And, uh, I, you know, the other reason, the more I read about King Solomon, I realized that he, since he was really the first king that had a kingdom or a, a, a built a, a temple, that he was one, and he had 700 wives, so he liked women. But the women brought all these spices with them and all these different dishes from wherever they came because they came from all over the then-known world. And so the palace and the and the um, temple must have been filled with these great aromas of you know people cooking outside the temple, and that's what and and also people were tithed to go the the, the twelve tribes of Israel each tribe was responsible for a different month in um, in uh, supplying the temple and the in the palace with foods and with precious stones and with wood and whatever they could find. So he just seemed, and and he was wise, so I'm sure he had good taste. (laughs) (laughs) And how did you find your way to these recipes? Well, you know, I guess I find my way to lots of recipes. 
Um, I heard about people. I knew uh, that I uh, that I just wanted n- new recipes that I hadn't ever used before. I also wanted to penetrate deep into the diaspora, and because of the immigration change in 1965 in the United States, when it opened it up for sort of weird countries, um, like uh, and, and with the fall of the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. so that all these countries became um, places from which people wanted to come to the United States, like um, Azerbaijan and Uzbekistan and different places. Um, so either I went to those places or I went to Brooklyn and Queens <laughs> or, or L.A., you know, to, to talk to immigrants. And, and first-generation immigrants are the ones to go to because mm-hmm. you'll get the real food from them. Which, again, is something that I so love about the work that you do um, because otherwise we wouldn't have these recipes. They wouldn't continue. Right, exactly, um, exactly. Because most it's, – it's my experience, and I think you've mentioned this to me before – as well, that Jewish tradition is like most of us don't write down recipes. We're taught them in the kitchen by somebody. Right, exactly. Um, exactly. And is there one uh, one of these recipes or dishes that you think is sort of representative of, let's say, King Solomon's table? Well, maybe. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. I went to a German woman's home in... Uh, um, El Salvador, and one of the women that had dinner there that night, she had a, 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 there are a hundred Jews in El Salvador, and um, one of them was making instead of potatoes, which of course came from the New World, but people went went to the Old World and brought them back in different guises. Um, so instead of making potato latkes, because she had come from I forget where. But to uh, El Salvador, she made her yakalakis with um, cilantro cream. So this was an, an example of the wandering of mm-hmm. recipes and the adaptation that's such a Jewish thing to the dietary laws. Were you surprised uh, where this exploration took you and what you discovered? Um, yeah, I mean, I was constantly surprised and, and, and also surprised at what I didn't know. I mean, that, which was one of the beautiful glories of, of writing a book, because for me, writing a book is an adventure in learning. So, for example, I never had heard of a, a dish called Shretzlach. Um, it's a Yiddish dish. In fact, I want to maybe somebody at your place can explain to me what this word means. Um, I had read about it in um, Mimi Sheraton's book on a, a thousand um, foods to eat before you die, and she said that it was an iconic Jewish food from Toronto. So I found a recipe for it and um, started making it, and I knew it was a blueberry bun, and, um, you know, the, the recipe, and while I was testing the recipe, which was good, but it, to me it wasn't great, a, a girl came into my house who stays with us very often, and she said, that looks just like what my grandma makes but hers is better. So these blueberry buns, are, you shape them with, in your one hand. They shape like an, um, an, uh, an oval shape, and you put blueberries in and some sugar, and you close them, and you, then you put sugar on top, like a sugar coating, 
and you bake them. And when done well, they're really delicious. So I, you know, I followed the recipe from southwest Poland, a little village, and then I learned from somebody, and it, and it turns out that her, um, the, the recipe that I had from Toronto that was from a bakery was from a place called Rakow in southwest Poland, and this young girl's grandmother's recipe was from 30 miles away in southwest Poland. And I realized then that because of the Holocaust, so many, uh, you know, books were lost, and so many, uh, so much culture was lost, but also so many recipes were lost. But then, after this book came out, um, I was a, a um, cinematographer or a cameraman when I was doing an interview. Started smiling when I talked about it, and he he said his wife was Polish, and these were Polish pastries that they eat to this day. And I realized this is, again, another example of Jewish adaptation from where they lived, that this was a Polish treat, and Jewish Poles made the same dish. And that's why other people had never heard of it. Mm -hmm. You you write about that in terms of chicken paprikash, which has always been interesting to me. My sister-in-law's family is from Hungary, and there's, you know, different variations on a theme there as well. Right. I will say, I, I... I love, as a cook and as a foodie, I love your books, but your introduction is fascinating because you really do take us on this journey, and it all begins to make sense, as it were. Right. Well, you know, I I worked very hard on that and uh, for months because it was too long, and my editor was pushing me to really shorten it, and I was stubborn. And then she agreed that I did it the right way. So that made me feel really good. Thank you and for I've holding had, ground. Yes. And I've had so many comments on it. It really has been very encouraging for me that, oh, you know, yeah. with all the quickness that there's some people that will let me just be. Well, I think it's so central to what you're you have and are continuing to do, right. um, and it's great. King Solomon's cake. Did you name that? King Solomon's what? Cake. The recipe for King Solomon's. Oh, um, that, no. That per- the person did, and therefore it was a perfect ending to the book. And <laughs> it's such an interesting, in my mind, it's an interesting melding of regional ingredients. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Because it's like a, um, not a. Um, what do you call it, semolina mm-hmm. and dates, and it's all the Middle East. Yeah, and it's nothing that I would imagine in terms of making a cake, and yet you it's can... delicious. S- it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, I would imagine it's also fragrant. I'm going to try it for next dinner party. Okay. Um, last question. Okay. Um, has this changed your culinary repertoire at all, or do you have a favorite recipe as a result? Yeah, I love that um, the cake with the, the, the fruit, with the, um, it's like an upside-down uh, crostata, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and people make it all the time. My son sort of took an old recipe, and it's so easy that I'm going to make it next week for a friend's birthday. <laughs> it's great. great. Um, well, thank you for taking the time to join us. I know you're on a tight schedule today, um, and hope to see you soon. And again, thanks for your work. It's just wonderful. Oh, thank you. All right, thank take you, care. Thank you. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To learn more about this podcast and to subscribe, visit our website, yiddishbookcenter.org. This episode is produced by me, Alexa Sewing. And until next time, be well and be healthy.